Okay. So uh, I want to get into a, a few different pieces this week. Uh, partly on this theme of desire, and then connected more generally with the five hindrances. And then I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the 12-step connections. And so this is, uh, we'll see how this works out. So I just want to talk about, first of all, the Buddha's uh, definition of desire. I talked a little bit uh, before during the Q&A about uh, how he said that uh, having what you don't want is suffering and wanting what you don't have is suffering. That's part of the first noble truth, where he's kind of defining what suffering is. And the second noble truth, he's saying what causes it. And and there's three forms of desire that he identifies. One is sense desire. So that's pretty obvious. And and there's an obvious tie to addiction in there, the desire for pleasure and and the desire to get rid of discomfort. And we can see... This is one of the things you can track. Uh, you know, take it just like, I don't know, a couple hours of your day sometime and just notice how many actions you take that have to do with have, having sensual pleasure. And that, not on any exotic level, but every time you move your body, it's a craving to get rid of physical discomfort, yeah, pretty much, or to go to the refrigerator to get something comfortable. You know, it's pleasant. Um, you know, if there weren't desire, you could kind of sit there all day. You know, um, so it's interesting to see that just the power of that, how much that motivates us, and see. And again, you know, the word suffering is too. Uh, a big a word, sort of too strong a word to sometimes describe what the Buddha is talking about. The word he uses is dukkha. And dukkha has this meaning that's kind of like a, an axle that's a little bit off, that's kind of just not going around quite right. And, and it's often defined as unsatisfactoriness. And I think that's a more accurate description of the kind of ongoing quality of dukkha it's not that, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm suffering, so I have to move my foot. But it's just that if I pay attention, if I really pay attention to the feeling in the body and the impulse, I can see that there's a tension, that there's just this little niggling quality that's a little off. It's not quite right. It's unsatisfactory. So in a sense, where the meditation practice, one of the reasons we sit still and don't do anything in the meditation practice is so that we can confront those impulses and confront those, even those trivial discomforts as well as oftentimes bigger things will come up emotionally, mentally, physically. Confront them and see how to let go. And this is something you can only learn internally. But when we say, notice the thought and come back to the breath, we're kind of 
giving you the basic framework that that uh, and you start to see that it's possible to not be hooked to not be to not suffer to not feel dukkha even when something is unpleasant so the buddha says that everything you experience is either going to be pleasant unpleasant or neutral every sense experience you have and th- there's nothing you can do about that in 12 step terms you're powerless over that that everything has an impact on you but where you have a choice is how you react to that and if you can become at if you can become easeful with that equanimous is kind of the word equanimity is what the buddha talks about where you just notice it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, but you don't have to do anything about it, that's freedom. That's exactly what he's talking about in nirvana. That's like a moment of nirvana right there. A Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu, a Thai master of the 20th century, talked about these moments as little nirvanas. I like that too because then it takes the grand idea of enlightenment and brings it right down into this moment. Because where else are you going to find enlightenment except in this moment? So starting to play with that and uh, you know, not setting it up as an ideal because uh, you know, I don't know who is there. Maybe somebody. But I think I can safely say that most of us are not there that we're going to be able to let go in every moment and be equanimous in every moment. But if we can just get a glimpse of that, that's freeing in itself because it shows shows us our potential and it gives you a tool that when you need it, you have that thing you can turn to. And just knowing that it's possible to let go, even when you can't let go, can give you some comfort. So this is part of what we're trying to do in this practice, is just notice the little, the ways that unsatisfactoriness, that dukkha arises, and learning to not respond to it, to just allow it to come and go, accept it. And then, of course, the 12-step, you know, the big book of AA, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. Very much what this is talking about. So then the Buddha talks about two other forms of desire. There's the sensual desire, but then there's the desire, he says, it's just called the desire to be. And this can be explored and I think is worth exploring for, for yourself. The way I understand that is that it's the desire to have an identity, to be somebody, to be recognized as somebody, to feel like I'm somebody. And it's not that Again, you know, it's not that it's bad to have an identity, but that if we cling to that, that it's going to cause suffering. Because the the reason that clinging, one of the main reasons that clinging, trying to cling to things causes suffering, is that thing, everything is constantly changing, and so you can't cling. You can only try to cling, and so you're constantly frustrated. It's always unsatisfactory. So if you have, you have this sort of sense of, well, who I am, you know, and you've got the car and the relationship and the job that prove that, 
and then you know you get a flat tire and your partner leaves you and you get laid off and wow who am I now you know, I've lost all who I I've lost my identity I don't know who I am um, and besides just puffing yourself up like that is painful if you actually again look and see how it feels. This is always the reference point for me. And at one time early in my practice, and this is in One Breath at a Time, Jack Cornfield said to me, your practice is to feel. That was the best advice I ever got. It, it bothered me. I didn't want my practice to be to feel. I wanted my practice to be to get enlightened. Your practice is to be fully awakened. Okay. <laughs> Your practice is to feel, oh, oh, come on. Couldn't we make it like my practice is to follow my breath? No, feel. Well, what that showed, what that opened the door to was seeing the truth of clinging, the truth of suffering, the truth of unsatisfactoriness, moment by moment. The only way you can let go is if you can see it first and know what it is that you're clinging to. And the only way to really know that you're clinging to something is to feel it. I, I, that's Actually, I'm going to take that back. Rewind the tape. Uh, you can know it by observing your thoughts, too. You know, uh, but feeling is really a trustworthy... It, it's a direct in there to the knife. You know, ah, got it, I feel it. And then the, the third form of desire is the desire to not be. This is the desire to obliterate it all, to turn it off, to get away from it all. Another uh, form of addiction as well. This is really the heroin addict desire, I think. Uh, especially, I mean, that to me is the, the ultimate escape. Um, is a desire to just go to sleep, you know. Um, but it, it, I don't know, that, I don't understand this, the desire to not be in terms of ego, but it, it might, it, it must be tied into that in some way too. I, I would say that it manifests more, in terms of ego, it manifests more as self-hatred. So self-judgment. I think is, uh, whereas maybe desire to be is kind of, you know, grandiosity, then the desire to not be is kind of expressed in, in self-hatred or self-judgment. And e- either of those is, is delusion, because what, what are you grandiosing, you know? What are you judging? A thought, a feeling, an image, a memory, a, a projection. You know, there's nothing really there to... That's the problem, of course, with, with self. Now, one of the things that often comes up and I think is so important is to recognize that there is another kind of desire which isn't self-centered. There's a desire for freedom, uh, the desire to serve, the desire to let go. 
So this is really tied into uh, right intention, the second uh, of the Eightfold Path, second aspect of the Eightfold Path. Uh, and, you know, again, really, you have to kind of feel your way in. Is this a skillful desire or is this a, uh, you know, a, a craving? And with, with intention, uh, there, it may be, be mixed. And you, things usually are mixed. You know, there's very, very few, few pure uh, intentions. Uh, and this is, to me, also part of the, uh, I guess I would say, sophistication of Dharma practice and a Dharma understanding that we have to let go of kind of black and white thinking, oh, that was right intention, well, that was wrong intention, and uh, I'm bad, no, I'm good, you know, just to see that, oh, you know, I'm human, and that contains both positive and negative, destructive and constructive. So the other way I'd like to talk about desire is in the context of the five hindrances, which are uh, a teaching on the, that uh, is applicable, especially and usually uh, talked about within the meditation practice, that to notice when the, these these things appear, to be aware of them, and at times to uh, to use some antidotes to them. Uh, so the five hindrances are desire and aversion. So that's one pair. And then there's sleepiness and restlessness, another pair. And then doubt, the fifth hindrance. And what they, what they actually hinder is your ability to get quiet and calm and peaceful and concentrated. They don't hinder mindfulness. You can be quite mindful. Of, of desire or sleepiness or doubt. These things just appear and disappear. Uh, but they, what you find when you pay attention, when you notice them, is that you, there's tends to be an agitation uh, with them. Uh, sort of some, uh, you know, you don't feel like you're meditating, you know, basically. I mean, that word meditate, you know, when you first hear about meditation, people usually think of it as this kind of exotic state of bliss or spirituality. And then you take class, at least out here, you know, the way we teach it, and just like, God, I'm not meditating. This is terrible. I didn't realize. But it is possible uh, to let go of the hindrances for periods of time and to, and to experience that kind of really pleasant, peaceful, even blissful uh, practice uh, that comes and goes as well. The hindrances, and I talk about them in both of my books, so uh, pretty extensively. I'm not going to go too into them, but, but just to point out that they are tied in with our addiction as well. So as they are they arise in meditation, and of course they arise at other times. I mean, we practicing watching desire and aversion. The, when you're meditating, it's very natural 
to get tired and fall asleep or to get restless and want to move or to just sit there and go, why am I doing this? Or, am I doing this right? You know, uh, the doubt. Uh, I think it's, they're a useful model, though, for looking at uh, triggers for addiction and behaviors. So obviously desire and aversion I've talked about as being part of our addiction, but sleepiness and restlessness are actually part of them too. One of the classic uh, acronyms for the triggers for relapse in, is HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. These are all things that can kind of trigger our uh, relapsing or just our negative mind states. So tired is, uh, tiredness is seen as a cause. Well. If you recall from your alcohol studies, uh, alcohol suppresses uh, fatigue temporarily. <laughs> so Friday night, you know, it's been a long work week. You know, what you should do is go home and go to bed early, but you go to the bar instead, and you get manic from drinking, right? So it's masking the fatigue until you pass out. Um, Tiredness, uh, you know, it's like our defenses are down when we're tired. So we tend to fall into the negative uh, behaviors. So, so the point of bringing this into a mindfulness practice is to be able to start to identify, oh, I'm tired, I don't need a drink. I need rest, you know what I mean? So that we start to, this is the self-care that, that we learn in recovery, that when something when there's a difficult feeling, it's not time to go act out. It's time actually, oh, I need some care. That's why I'm angry. I don't need to go kill that person. I need to go rest or get eat. My wife just, she is in Ireland. I don't know if I mentioned that she's teaching in Ireland this month. And uh, she said she came up with a new word, hangry. When you're hungry and angry. So I've been susceptible uh, to that particular condition. And, the, but the, and restlessness as well, that kind of agitation. Uh, you know, I just got to do something. Um, but then the fifth hindrance is interesting too in terms of recovery, doubt. I don't know if I'm really an alcoholic. I don't know if I'm really, I'm not really an addict. I mean, you know. So what happens when you, when you have that doubt? I say this so often now. It's like my, my standard punchline that, you know, it's, it's so ironic that when someone decides they're not an alcoholic, the first thing they do is go out and drink. <laughs> so I think if you, were, if you weren't an alcoholic, you would, you know, not start drinking immediately because you're not an alcoholic. So, what? but I'm not an alcoholic. Yeah, pour me a glass of wine. So, doubt we can see is actually a really dangerous hindrance and and one to really notice in in your recovery as well as your practice. Is this working? Should I? Should I? I don't know if I should. Maybe I should take that Sufi dancing class instead. This meditation doesn't really work. Yeah. So. Uh, so the hindrance is a really valuable model for just watching these negative mind states. So now I, I want to uh, take on one, one more topic 
for this evening. And this is really kind of a shift, but uh, the, and that is uh, kind of looking at steps two and three in, in the 12 steps. Uh, just exploring them a little bit from, uh, from this Buddhist viewpoint. So step two says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And this is where the 12 steps start to sound like this kind of Christian or uh, uh, theistic model, and, and certainly that's the language of it. But, but I've come to understand the steps uh, in a way that really doesn't involve uh, a god uh, in, the, in the Western sense. It's because this coming to believe that a power greater than ourselves, when I think we have to sort of understand why the steps are written the way they are. The, the reason that step one says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol or drugs or food, or that our lives become unmanageable, is that the people who started and first worked with the 12 steps and started the program were trying to get through to people to other people who hadn't gotten sober yet and trying to point out to them that they couldn't control their drinking. So this applies to all the programs, but that's, this is where it started from. It doesn't say, the first step doesn't say we stopped. What it's, and, but what it's saying is it's, it's trying to get across to you that you need to stop because you can't control it. And the implication, of course, being that we think we can control it. And that, but that if you're an alcoholic by you know, this, this idea, then you've tried to control it. And so that, that's the understanding, that, that you've tr- been trying to control this. And if... If, it's, if you're not controlling it, then we'd like to suggest to you that you can't control it. And so they use this word powerless in that limited sense. And I think it's, you know, that's, that's how it should be understood primarily. There's other things that we can see in our lives. I mean, as I point out, you know, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, we're powerless over that. We could say that. But just aside, you know, just looking at this particular use of this word. It's, it's just trying to get at the idea that you can't control it, so you need to stop. <laughs> and then what, they're, what I believe they're trying to get at with steps two and three is that you've been trying to run your life on self-will, ego, on based on your own desires. And this is where desire connects, okay? And that if you run your life based on what you want all the time, just on your self-centered desire, that you're going to be in constant conflict with the world and that you are going to create very negative circumstances for yourself and for others. That's constantly trying to satisfy your desires is not only unsatisfactory, but it's destructive. And so they're trying to turn us to think of our lives in a different way, to orient our intention 
in a different way. Away from self-will and craving and towards being in harmony with something greater. In Buddhism, we call this taking refuge. We take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. That is, in, when we take refuge in Buddha, we say that we're trying to live an awake, mindful life. We're trying to be present. When we take refuge in the Dharma, we're trying to see our experience through the lens of truth rather than through the lens of our personal preferences, our personal conditioning. So this greater view. When we take refuge in Sangha, we are trying to be part of a community to draw from the strength of the community and to offer our own support to the community, to be uh, connected. And that 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 community specifically is our spiritual community. So this is to take us out of working on self-will and being... Because when you remove, the, if, you, if you buy into the idea that desire causes suffering, then there's the question, well, what am I supposed to do? If, I don't, if I'm not following my desires, then I don't have any, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do because I don't have any desire. Well, the Dharma gives you guidance. Right? It gives you the five precepts. Don't harm people. Don't steal from people. Don't, harm, don't lie. Don't use intoxicants. It gives us things like right livelihood. Try to do work with a spirit of service. Uh, right speech. Try to speak kindly, truthfully. Right mindfulness. Try to live an awake life. Right effort. Try to strive without grasping. Right concentration. Stay focused. Stay with things. Work very closely with things. So the, this is where step three says we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Of course, this sounds like we're supposed to be born again. Uh, but the way I understand it is that what this means is that I'm, instead of following my self-will, I'm going to try to follow the right intention. Intention and will are synonymous, not, they're not uh, exactly the same word, but they're pointing at the same thing, that my motivation, what's, what's guiding me, what's pointing me. So in our practice, we start by watching desire. And we see the suffering that arises with that. And when we let go of it, as the gentleman said before, I guess he left who was sitting back there, he was asking about, uh, he was talking about having intuition. So then we start to connect with that, with something more intuitive. And and what the Buddha says is, when your idea comes up, when when your intuition or your intention comes up, see if it's in alignment with the Dharma before you act on it. So this is why we study the Dharma, so that we know what it is (laughs) that we're trying to be in alignment with, right? So this is the process to me. It's not, you know, certainly there are people all over the world practicing the 12 steps who are thinking of it in a religious or a a monotheistic way. And that, you know, that's fine. To me, whatever works. But 
for people who are, Buddha Dasa talks about people who are educated in the modern way, aren't going to buy into kind of this magical view of a, this being up in the sky that's pulling strings. But that if we actually look at the Dharma, we can see that it's actually powerful. That the law of karma, which is kind of what underpins that power, is very powerful. You can, and you can live in harmony with that, or you can go your own way, as Fleetwood Mac said. <laughs> this process, what the steps tell, turning it over to God, and what we Buddhists call taking refuge, is founded partly in faith, in a trust that this is actually going to work. And again, this isn't a faith in some magical belief, but it's a faith in the sense that we don't know (laughs) what's going to happen. Don't know. But we've come to believe, as the step says, that this makes sense, that, that the Dharma is true, and that living in harmony with the Dharma, my life will work better, that I will be happier, that those around me will be happier, that I will be of service. And, you know, life is such that uh, no matter what we are trying to do, we're going to fall down. Things are going to go wrong. Even if you have turned your will and your life over to the care of the Dharma or the taken refuge, your car will still break down and your children will still grow up and leave you, uh, hopefully. Uh, You know, problems will arise. You'll get sick. Uh, So we have, so faith is important. You know, those moments of, of faith when things are not working, when you start to think, well, really, does this work? I don't know. Is it, uh, and just a little bit at a time, in, the, you know, in our practice, when we, see, when we just see that noticing desire and then coming back to my breath is a moment of relief, when we just see that, that's the beginning of faith, and faith in the process. Because, okay, this is what the teacher said, this is what the Buddha said, this is what I heard I should do, I tried it, and that much worked. Okay, let me try the next thing they're saying. And then you, you you kind of build up to the point where you really fully embrace and, and, uh, and fully trust in the process. So this is the way that uh, faith is understood in Buddhism, that we don't have to swallow it whole, but that we take a little bit at a time, that we, uh, we grow more confident and more trusting in the process over time. Uh, the other aspect of faith, I think, that is sometimes more difficult than faith in the Dharma or even faith in God is faith in ourselves. Uh, 
And I think that step two, coming to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, really, uh, it's, it also involves coming to believe that I can do it. Uh, um, and, what, and, and having some understanding of what that means. Not thinking that I can control it, but that I can stay with this process. And that recovery and healing and happiness are for me too. Uh, that can be a tough one to, to believe. So again, I think we have to prove that to ourselves and develop faith in ourselves a little bit at a time, you know, taking little steps. Um, you know, seeing that, wow, I sat for 20 minutes today. You know, wow, I can do that. Okay, you know, I didn't binge today. I didn't act out today. And this is one of the pieces, I think, of, of recovery that isn't, maybe, I don't think it's emphasized enough, and that is self-appreciation. And, and this, in a way, uh, it, you know, one of my theories, and I think, if I haven't mentioned it, I'm full of theories, <laughs> which you can use another term for that if you prefer. But, <laughs> but if you look at the, you know, I've read the 12-step literature over the years, and in a certain way, I think that a lot of the mythology in the 12 steps is based on Bill Wilson's personality. I mean, he was the primary author of the two uh, foundation texts in AA. And, um, you know, he pointed at resentments and self-will and uh, sort of, he was obviously a self-promoter. Everybody's not like that, you know. And he, it was important for him to tear down his ego. That was what he really needed to do in order to uh, get, stay sober and to, and to work a program. But I don't think that's true of everybody in a 12-step program. I think a lot of people need to actually build up their ego a little bit, as we were talking about before, that idea that there has to be a self before you can let go of self. So... Um, I think it's really important besides, you know, and the, the fourth step is writing this moral inventory, which is kind of looking at all the ways you've been harmful in your life. But I think it's equally important, perhaps, to write that positive inventory about yourself, the things that you're good at, the, the ways that you've been a good person, uh, the, the ways you are kind, the ways you are of service, the ways you try, <laughs> you want to be good. So, um, that's really all we have time for tonight. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't leave time for more questions, but um, I did want to kind of touch on these different things, so I, I hope that was helpful. Uh, I want to do a little closing uh, before we go, and, and I will also remind you that I am supported in this teaching completely by your generosity. I mention that every week, just 
because I figure people uh, forget. <laughs> I don't know if you forget. But it's part of, actually part of my practice. Uh, when I first started to teach, I avoided talking about dana. And then when I first started to talk about dana, which is, means generosity, I was very uncomfortable with it. And I came to see it as my responsibility to take, partly to take care of myself. But what's also really, really important to see is that the, this is a practice. The practice of generosity is not just tossing some money in a basket. It's really an expression of appreciation. And it's also a kind of letting go. And it's also a, a joyful quality of supporting something and feeling the love and, and, and being able to express it in that way. And there are many other ways that dana is expressed other than financially. But um, it's, it's actually the, the reason the Buddha taught this was not so that he could get a meal. It was because he saw the power, the positive power of generosity. And so he saw it as a, a way of giving people an opportunity to practice something that they might not otherwise practice. And that's the spirit of it here at Spirit Rock. And of course, I want you to give a lot of money. You know, I mean, that's, you know, I'm greedy. And uh, well, there's greed and there's also reality. So I am supported by it. It's a real thing, too. So it's operating on all these levels. And I don't, I don't like to pretend that it's only, op- oh, it's all just spiritual. Oh, whatever you can give, that's fine. No, it, it matters, you know. That, there's also the realistic thing. Like it, ma- it matters, too. So it's taking responsibility and, and being aware of those levels and practicing it on the, all the levels, which also means taking care of yourself, not giving too much, right? Not being, oh, I love, oh, wow, I don't have enough gas money because I left it all with gas. No, you know, to, to not turn it into a, you know, a codependent or neurotic kind of thing. So let's just take a moment to sit and breathe. When we see that chasing after our own satisfaction is fruitless, we start to turn towards the idea that being of service and sharing is really our purpose. And it's really the way to freedom. In the 12 steps, we suggest carrying the message. In Buddhism, we talk about sharing the merit. So in that spirit, whatever good has arisen from our practice tonight, we dedicate 
to the awakening of all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you. I hope you'll come back next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.